Um, Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here at City Light. Great to have you with us this afternoon as we move through the Gospel of Matthew. And as we open up a chapter 4 together that Jacob just read out to us a portion of just then. Uh, but just before we get there, uh, if you are here and a regular member, you may know that we're in the middle of making a decision about where we will gather. And so we would just appreciate that if you would be taking some time over this week to pray as the leadership team think and pray these things over. We took a day last week to meet, then to pray and fast over things. I'll speak a little bit more into that later on. Um, but really when it comes to a decision as a church, we want to make sure it's not just about the decision that you make, but how you make it, isn't it? And in a way that really honours God and is slow in coming to a unity over a decision. So we, just, we would love for you to continue to be praying for us um, and we will uh, keep you posted with things. If you're wondering where things are up to, check your inbox. If you're not getting the emails, please let me know. I'd love to make sure we're keeping you informed as we continue on with that. But we are looking at Matthew chapter 4, and every week that we open up the Scriptures, this is God's Word about who His Son Jesus is, we will find out something new and distinct about who Jesus is. Matthew each week is unfolding for us a story of the claim that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who came to save us from our sins, and each week so far is revealed a little bit more about who this Jesus is. And the question that's on the table today is this, how human was Jesus. Now the idea of what makes a human or whatever has been wrestled by with artists for, you know, for all eternity. But uh, one story that you may be at least familiar with on a popular level is that of Frankenstein. Now if you've actually read Mary Shelley's classic, you would have been struck by a couple of things straight away. The first thing it would have felt betrayed by was the fact that the monster isn't called Frankenstein. That's the name of the doctor that makes the monster. The monster never gets a name. It's just the monster. That's the first thing. The second one is, it's not cartoonish and fun. It's so violent. It is such a violent story. And the third thing is that the monster doesn't walk about and moan and groan. He it speaks like a bard, is a poet. And he'll say things like, I will glut you with the more of death while mashing people's heads with a bat. Right? He's just, it's, a, it's a funny kind of story like that. It's a wild tale. But at the heart of the story is a profound question about this monster. If you, to give you some background, if you're not familiar with Frankenstein, he's exhumed all these body parts, kind of stitched them together to form a human in a sense, or something that looks like a human, and then vivified it, given it life, and this thing has come to life. 
And the whole wrestle throughout the book is, is this thing human? Is it just a monster, a monstrosity, or is this thing a person worthy of love and honor and affection? And the whole story is of Dr. Frankenstein abandoning this monstrosity and the monster chasing after him, spurned by his rejection. Now, while the book Frankenstein wrestles with what is a human, the passage that we're looking at today is wrestling with the question when it comes to Jesus, how human was he? Now, if you're a skeptic, of course, the question isn't particularly meaningful because I assume if you think he was a historical person at all, you imagine he was, that's all that he was. He was a great teacher. His teachings have had some kind of a global impact, obviously. But of course, he was nothing more than a human. But if you're someone who follows Jesus, you believe in the claim that he wasn't just human but was in fact divine as well. The question is, how human was he? Is it true, like the Christmas carol said, that no crying he made when he was born in a manger? Did Jesus never laugh, weep, get hungry, tired, itchy, sick, bored? Did he kind of skate his way through humanity? He was like in one of those movies where an alien puts on a flesh suit that appears to be human, but they never quite master all of the bits and pieces. It's really just a kind of a supernatural being kind of parading as being human, but only at a superficial level. Well, now the claim of Matthew 4 is that Jesus was human all the way down, that he was fully human, that his experience was in every way authentically human. In fact, that he was the true human who has walked the earth. And he experienced everything that we'd experience yet without sin. He experienced all the boredom, all the inanity, all the difficulty, sometimes the meaninglessness of life in a sinful, broken world. And he did it Because if Jesus was not fully human, then he could not fully save. That will be the claim of the Gospel of of Matthew right the way through to the end. If Jesus was not fully human, then he did not and could not fully save us. And so what we will see this morning in Matthew 4 is Jesus living out full humanity, refusing to cheat, refusing shortcuts, refusing to work around it, but living out full humanity in front of our very eyes that we might see that he is a saviour who can save and who can be trusted. I'm going to pray that we'll see that this, this afternoon. Father, we praise you that you are a God who sent your Son into the world to live out everything we've experienced in this sinful, broken world. The suffering, the difficulty, the joy, the beauty, and often just the frustration of living in a world like this. And Father, we thank you that he did this, that he might die a death that would be a sacrifice in our place. And Father, we just pray that we'd be struck anew by the claim that Jesus was both fully human and fully God, that we might live with wonder and follow him with all our heart. Amen. So we're in the Gospel of Matthew, obviously, and the first week, the the claim right out of the gates, there was a genealogy which was to demonstrate that he was the son of David by descendant, which meant that he was of kingly heritage. But the claim in Matthew 1 is that Jesus is the Christ, that Christ was not his surname, but it was a claim about what kind of person he was, that he was the promised king. For hundreds of years, the Jewish people had been waiting for this Christ. And in that intervening time, many people had come along and said, it's me. They led military uprisings, they ruled, they seemed like people of influence and power. But all of them had one thing in common. They died and were forgotten. But along comes Jesus, 
And he completely blows up the ancient world. And Matthew is writing to tell people this is why he's really the Christ. That king that God had promised from long ago, this isn't a phony. This isn't the next one in the line of a a whole bunch of phonies. This is the guy, the real deal, the authentic thing. And so the first week he makes the claim that Jesus was the Christ and he had one mission and it was one that no one was expecting, that he came to save us from sin. And then in the second week, we saw that the other surprising thing about Jesus was that he was going to be rejected by his own people, and yet people from all tribes, nations, and tongues would actually come to him. That actually, when he's born, the leaders of his own people try to kill him, and foreigners come and worship him as a king. And we see that Jesus is going to be the kind of king with a global perspective, that people from all walks and backgrounds will come to him. Then in the third week, last week, we see that Jesus comes out to see his weird cousin in the desert. What an awful family reunion. Everyone's got a weird cousin, but not all of us would walk weeks and weeks to go and hear them preach in the desert as they eat locusts and honey. But that's what Jesus did because he's a good guy. And he goes out to see his cousin John, and when he gets there, John's baptizing sinners, and Jesus puts his hand up and says, I'm going to get baptized. And John says, no, you're not. You're the Christ. You're the sinless one. This is not for you. And Jesus goes and gets baptized because he's going to show, I'm going to identify with sinful humanity. I'm here to get right into the muck of things, and I'm going to save sinners. And so that's what he does. He gets in the water and gets baptized. And to demonstrate that this is right and good, God the Father rends the heavens and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, and immediately the Spirit starts leading Jesus into his ministry. And so we get to Matthew chapter 4, and another weird thing happens. Right at the beginning of Jesus' world-changing ministry, What do you think would be the first thing that he would do? What is a power move for someone who's going to be a global influencer? Instead of going to a major city and starting a platform, look what he does. Matthew 4, 1 to 2. says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. So the Spirit will lead Jesus through his whole ministry. He is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So Jesus is led into the wilderness, or desert more specifically, because the wilderness there was not, if you had some lush Amazonian kind of paradise in your mind, you can scratch that. It's just sand on sand on sand. That's what Jesus was led into, just nothingness. And he heads out there, and the wilderness in Scripture is often a place of testing. For the people of Israel, they walked through the wilderness for 40 years as a time of testing. But Jesus is out there 40 days which in itself is not miraculous. People on hunger strikes have lasted longer. But at this point, Matthew states the obvious and says he was very hungry. He's very understated, Matthew. And after 40 days, he says Jesus was very hungry. More specifically, he would have been thin and drawn and emaciated and like he had barely any life left in him. That's how you would be, starving. And Satan comes to him in this weakened state to tempt him. But again, it's kind of unexpected. I don't know if you picked that up in the reading. The temptations are weird. Look at what happens, 4, 3 to 11. It says, The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall live by, not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, 
You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. There are three tests here, and all of them follow the same recipe. Satan presents a temptation, and Jesus refutes it dramatically and with Scripture. But I don't know if you noticed, they are strange temptations. Why didn't he go for the old sex money power? Why has he here gone for bread and angels and kingdoms? The kingdom ones maybe is the one that makes the most sense. But why the first two? It says you're hungry, make some food for yourself. That doesn't seem so outrageous. And the second one, he says, well, if you were to jump off the, the thing, it would be unwise. But look, call some angels to actually look after you. And the third one, he says, why don't you take all these kingdoms that really are under my power and you can have them for yourself if you just worship me? What is he getting at here? All three of these temptations really are just one. The one temptation here that he's presenting before Jesus is to say to him, Jesus, shortcut your humanity. Cheat. Do something. Do a magic trick. Skip out on being fully human. Don't be hungry like a human. Make your own bread. Don't suffer injury like a human. Call supernatural intervention to save you. Don't be powerless like a human. Take all the kingdoms for yourself. Don't middle about here in some backwater town being a nobody. Be a somebody. And the reason Satan is tempting him is because if Jesus is not fully human, he cannot fully save. In the fourth century, there was a huge debate in the church around the divinity and humanity of Jesus. Arius was a theologian with significant influence, and he believed that Jesus was just human. Athanasius held that Scripture taught that Jesus was divine and that he was God, and he held on to that the whole time. And in that debate, he particularly wanted to emphasize Jesus' divinity, to demonstrate that he was God and man, not just man, that he wasn't a demigod like the pagan religions at the time. He wasn't a human that then somehow graduated to being a god of some kind, but that he pre-existed, took on human flesh, and lived out full humanity, and died of a sacrifice in our place on our behalf and rose again bodily. And in the latter part of his life, he devoted most of his attention to the incarnation, that is, Jesus becoming fully human. And the expression came about, which was this, that what has not been assumed has not been redeemed. What has not been assumed has not been redeemed. If Jesus did not assume, take on full humanity, then he has not redeemed all humanity. What has not been assumed has not been redeemed. If Jesus was not truly human, he didn't truly save and couldn't truly save. And it's not a case of near enough is good enough. It's not that he could be 90%. He was mostly like us, or 99%. He was almost exactly like us in every way, just short of one thing. Now, if Jesus was not fully human, he cannot save. There is not a case of near enough is good enough. Think of it in this way. If you're on a flight from Sydney to LA, and the pilot announced, just, you know, general stuff to start with, thanks for flying such and such airlines, we hope you have a good flight, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, good news, we have 99% of the fuel that we need to make it to LA. Have a good day, everyone. Enjoy the in-flight movie. That, of course, would be a comfort to no one and a cause of distress for everyone, 
because near enough is not good enough when it comes to something that significant, is it? If Jesus were 99% human, he might as well have been zero. Either he was fully human or not at all, because either he was a human substitute in his death or he was not at all. Jesus did not die for angels or supernatural beings. There is no forgiveness for them possible because no one died in their place as a substitute. Humankind are the only beings in all creation that God stamped with his own image. And humankind are the only that he has set his heart upon to fully redeem and to save. And in taking on sinful, ruined humanity, he took on death for us. Athanasius wrote it this way. He writes, Jesus had to borrow death from humanity in order to die in our place. And even while he was dying, the very people he was dying to save were enticing him to cheat. Look what happens right at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 27:40, while Jesus is hanging there on the cross, gasping for breath and losing his life by the minute, people at the foot of the cross call out to him and say, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, echoing the exact same temptation here in Matthew 4, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Shed your humanity. Cheat death. But he remained faithful unto death and experienced death for us so that he might be a substitute to die in our place. That he might live a life of perfect, righteous goodness so that it could be credited to our bankrupt accounts. And that's why it says in the book of Hebrews, the New Testament author confirms this reading when he says in Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make atonement for the sins of the people. If Jesus was only half human, then we are only half saved. And there is no such thing as half saved. Either our sin is completely washed away or it's enough to damn us before a holy God. But Jesus' forgiveness is complete because his humanity was complete. And when he died in our place, he atoned for all our sins so that you could stand before a holy God who sees and knows every intention of the human heart and God would say to you, well done, faithful servant. Welcome home. All because Christ has washed us clean. And so having passed the test, Jesus begins his ministry. He leaves Nazareth and goes to Galilee. He starts preaching, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And he begins the work of redeeming humanity, starting in the area that he is and ending, well, at the end in Revelation when he will call every tribe, nation, and tongue to himself. Jesus was fully human so that he could fully redeem. Now at this point, let me just stop and just say, if you're a follower of Jesus, you cannot read this without stopping and thinking, how good is Jesus to me? This week, some of us fasted and prayed about the decision coming up. And I, I, like, I have to say, I haven't done this for a long time, but fasting this week to pray, I was, it's not going to be a grand revelation to you, I was, I was very hungry. <laughs> and in the middle of the day, so this was the passage I've been thinking over and reading over and preparing through this week. And I just contemplated what this would be like to do this day after day, week after week. And then to think that Jesus did that to demonstrate his full humanity. He came here by no fault of his own. He came because it was my fault, for my sin, 
And he suffered that for me. And that was only a drop of what he suffered in this life. He went without food. He suffered pain and agony. He came into a suffering, sin-soaked world. He suffered abandonment like none of us here can possibly experience. And if you are here and your faith is in Jesus, he faced an abandonment that you will never face. He suffered torture and death. And just contemplate for a second. It wasn't for no reason. It was for your sin, for my sin. That's why he did it. Who has ever loved you like that? Who has ever gone through that much for you? This is your king and savior. This is the claim of the gospel. Many people think that the real meaning of Frankenstein is that it's kind of an allegory for humanity and God. That actually we are the monster and God is some far-off deity who made us, made a huge mistake and just left. And the, the kind of the yearning of the monster is humanity's cry out to a God who has abandoned us, who has left us alone. That there is a creator who is disgusted with his creation and cannot bear it. But that runs directly in the face of Matthew 4. Matthew 4 is the claim that God is not a disgusted creator who could not be near his creation, but one who came into this world to redeem humanity fully, who came as near as he could come because he loves you and wants to redeem you. And so that's the first point of praise, just to praise God for Jesus. That when we have the chance after this to sing, and just know as well, out of all the major world religions, we're the only ones who spend so much time just hearing from a sacred text and singing. That is unique to Christianity and always has been. And the reason is that what else can you do when you hear of all that Jesus has done for you? He's not calling you to save yourself, but simply to believe that he died in your place for your sin. So when we take the time afterwards to sing, make the most of the opportunity to sing the praises of your creator, Jesus, who was God and man and saved. That's the first point, I think, to reflect on as we consider the truth of, of Matthew 4. But the second one is this, that Jesus' full humanity means that he could fully save. But he also shows us how to live as fully human. And that means that in a sinful, broken world, that part of being fully human will actually involve resisting temptation. Now, that might not sound like an extraordinary claim, but I think it does run counter to the main cultural narrative at the moment. We live in a time where the prevailing view is, if it's not illegal and it feels good, then you should probably do it. Oscar Wilde probably summed up the spirit of the age when he said that the only way to defeat temptation is to give in to it. That really, if I want to do something that's short of crime and I can do it and it feels good to do it, not only probably should I should do it, but I might even be morally obligated to do it. Because to not do it might be to miss out on being fully human. So much of our culture's talk and narrative and text is all about finding your true self or being authentic to yourself. And what that means is, inside me there are deep desires that I need to discover. And once I've found what my deepest and truest desires are, I need to fulfill them and live them out. That's how I become fully human. And if I don't indulge those desires, I'm missing out on real life, on my true self, on my actual identity. And because of this, we're terrified to say no to anything, and perhaps even losing the, the ability to say no to anything. We're afraid of closing doors, of missing opportunities, 
because we are told that we might miss out on what it means to be truly human. We need to expand our horizons to seize the day to take every opportunity, but in, in actual fact, it is making us deeply unhappy. We are busy, tired consumers, and we are endlessly dissatisfied and eternally envious. And even when we have something good, we stress that we could be having something better anyway, so we don't enjoy what good we have before us so often. And all of this comes from the belief that being fully human means that I must not resist temptation, but must find my deepest desires and indulge it, so long as it's not illegal or harming someone in some significant way. But it's not true. Jesus shows us that in this passage, there is something called sin. And that, it, and that in every human heart, there will be the wrestle to, to, to fight with sin. And that being fully human in a broken world will mean indulging right desires and resisting others. That not every desire of the human heart is reliable or good and to be trusted. And to flourish as humans, we will need to cultivate right desires and resist some others. And that can be difficult. And it's radically countercultural. Wouldn't you say it's also the thing that our culture is missing? Or even searching for? What's so amazing about Jesus is that he's not only saved us from the penalty of sin, but shows us how to live out full humanity, how to thrive as people. And not only this, but he has compassion on us because he knows what temptation feels like. He was fully human. So the temptation in the wilderness wasn't like a, a distant or cerebral thing to Jesus. He felt the draw of sin. Imagine in this way. If you've ever stood up to your neck, either in a rip or in fast-moving water, you feel the pull on your body. And to stand in a single spot requires incredible resistance. When you feel the water pulling against every part of you, the easiest thing is to let go and to just go with it. Jesus felt that when it came to temptation. When he was in the desert and the Satan was tempting him, he felt the draw to disobey and yet remained faithful. And because of this, he has compassion. He knows what it's like. If you feel like you are almost at breaking point in resisting some or another temptation, Jesus knows where you're at. He loves you. And more than that, he doesn't just say, Gosh, I don't know what that's like, but that seems really hard for you. He can say, I know in every way what that feels like. I love you. And in him, we have a king and a leader who can empathize with us, but still doesn't excuse sin. And isn't that what we most need? Think about, think about good parents. A good parent can empathize with their kids, but not excuse them. If you have a parent who always excuses their children's behavior... That child will be a disaster of a human. That is, that is the inevitable fact. As a parent, as a teacher, as a citizen, I can tell you that is a reliable truth. But also I can tell you, if you have a parent who can't understand what it's like, which is crazy because the way God designed it is that we all have to be kids before we be parents so that you can be like, of course I know what that's like. I was exactly like you at one point, but we forget at some point along the way. And we, 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 at some point we believe we were born 40, and grew up watching Murder, She Wrote, or something like that, I don't know. But if you grow up under a parent like that who only challenges you, but really can't empathize with you, you'll grow up under harsh expectation. And that's what I think most people think it is to follow Jesus, to grow up under a disappointed father figure. 
But that's not the truth of Matthew 4. Hebrews 4 affirms it again. Look at what it says, Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If you feel like you are just right on the edge, know that Jesus loves you and he understands you and he has felt it. Don't shy away from the throne of grace. But like it says here, draw near with confidence, knowing that we don't have a high priest who doesn't know what it's like, who calls us to standards that he has no idea what it's like down here, but a Jesus who in every way experienced everything we had and yet without sin. And he has washed away your sin completely. So your obedience is not to win his favor, but simply to live out the full humanity that he showed you how to live and continues to. Jesus is so good. But the last thing is this. If you are here and a follower of Jesus, you cannot read Matthew 4 without thinking, wow, look how far God will go to save sinners. I mean, there is no other religion that has a suffering God like Jesus. One that has taken on the suffering of his people. God is a missionary God. And Jesus was willing to take on full humanity to save us. And so when he calls you as a disciple, he calls you to be someone who is willing to lay down your life to see others saved as well. Look what happens in the very next passage. In Matthew 4, 18 to 22, it says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, because they did that all the time. It was just, it, these days it's kind of rude. If you know someone's name is like Andrew and you just say, From now on, you're Dave. That's, it's really dehumanizing. But back then, it just happened all the time. Simon is Peter. You're Peter now. It says, Simon, who is Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately, they left their boat, and their father, and followed him. These fishermen had no idea what their decision would cost them. That for three out of the four of them, it would cost them their very life. And for John, I mean, even he was exiled and barely made it out alive. And all of them for following Jesus. They also had no idea that in a far-off country, in a city in Sydney, Australia, people would be reading their names. They had no idea that what they were a part of was going to change the world completely. All they heard was they saw Jesus, and whatever it was they knew about him, they knew that he had authority, and so when he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, they dropped their nets, they dropped their careers, and they followed after him. As we think about the decision to go to the high school or not, the decisive factor cannot be what will be most easy or most comfortable. But what will help us to reach as many people with the gospel as we can before we are taken from this world? And it will cost. It is costly to follow Jesus. He never says it isn't. The whole way through Matthew, you hear it again and again. It is costly, but it's worth it. Because there is no one or no thing like Jesus in all creation. It, will cost, it costs them comfort and ultimately their lives. But if Jesus was willing to take on death to save our souls, we must not mind a little suffering for the sake of others. 
Let's pray that we will be Christ-like in this as we remember his sacrifice on our behalf, that it will lead us to radical love for other people. Let's pray. Father, so often we find it hard to consider the gravity of the claim that Jesus was fully God and fully man. That he was completely human and yet fully divine. And that he has saved us completely from sin so that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. That there is none who can bring any charge against the people of God. But Jesus was fully human and so he fully saved. And Father, we pray that because of this, we'd remember in times of temptation that Jesus knows and understands that we have a great high priest who intercedes for us and loves us. And that it might lead us to live lives that are holy and full of the joy of the gospel. Father, we pray that we would be a people who are willing to lay down our lives to see others saved just as Jesus did for us. And not that we might win your favor, but that we might just have the joy of following after our maker and king. Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.